Welcome to the Single Lady Estates podcast. My name is Bobby Wasserman, and I'm the founder of Single Lady Estates. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. Today, we have an incredible episode all about structural engineering, and I promise that this discussion will be informative and entertaining. A structural problem can really be anything that affects the structural reliability of your home or condo. With such a broad scope of what could go wrong, you, as a homeowner or potential homeowner, really need some basic understanding of the home structure, as well as what to look for in regards to inspection reports. Some general knowledge can really go a long way in saving you a lot of money over time. Today, we have a national expert joining us to discuss this incredibly important topic. Joe DiPompeo is the president at Structural Workshop, LLC, and the past president of the Structural Engineering Institute of the American Society of Civil Engineers, an organization of 30,000 structural engineers. You might recognize Joe's name from the national news coverage of the Surfside condo collapse in Florida in 2021, where he was sought out as a national expert in discussing that structural disaster. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Bobby. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Joe, I'd really love for you to talk about what attracted you to engineering, starting with your business as well as the SEI. Sure. Engineering-wise, I guess I was a a bit of a strange kid in in fact that I always knew what I wanted to do. My father's family was in construction, starting with my grandfather coming over from Italy and being a, a mason and tile guy. And then my father and uncle turned that into a pretty good size construction business. My cousin was in construction. So I kind of grew up around construction sites and trucks and my spare time when other kids were doing other activities. I was building something or digging roads in the dirt or, you know, building with Legos or dominoes, kind of always, always just building stuff, which now I realize I was probably different than some other kids. But I decided to go to college for engineering, not knowing exactly what type. And then when I got into my major with with structural courses, I suddenly barely had to study and, and was getting straight A's. So I figured that was probably what I was meant to do. And, you know, that's kind of what got me into engineering in terms of starting a business, I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs on both my mother's and father's sides of the family. And I just had a, a brief opportunity after I was out of college for a couple of years where I didn't have to worry about a salary for a few months. And I, I knew that was probably the only opportunity I ever was going to have to start a business because one of the hardest parts of starting a business is paying the bills and keeping a a current job while also starting a business. So I had a a brief opportunity due to some circumstances where I had about three, four months with minimal bills. And I said, this is my chance if I'm going to have one. And that was 2004. And we're 18, pushing 19 years later, and it's gone very well. And in terms of SEI, I volunteered for a business practices committee about 15 years ago, just to try to get a little more involved and network and kind of went from there the people that volunteer for for nonprofits, the ones that show up and continue to show up and have some leadership skills generally just keep getting asked to do the next thing. And and I didn't say no to any of that and ended up being the president for a term that ended about a year ago. Uh, my term as president ended. Excellent. So uh, let's jump right in and start with the Surfside condo collapse. Can you talk a little bit about what the issues were in that particular instance? 
and how those issues might apply on other coastlines or in other parts of Florida. And just from the Washington Post interview you gave early on, I know people noted the eroded pool deck failed first, but I was just kind of curious also if that's changed over time. Well, there has not been any official report yet. There's a team from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is the same group that investigated the World Trade Center, and that they've been working very hard since the event happened, but you know, they're still in the middle of their investigation. So there's no formal findings. In terms of the theories, not much has changed. The leading theory that you're referring to that was discussed a while ago was that something caused the pool deck to collapse. And when that happened, the pool deck was serving to brace some of the exterior columns of the building. And now the columns that were one story high were now two stories high because they were missing the level of the pool deck that was bracing them. And that's what initiated the collapse. But that has not been determined yet. They're still in the middle of the investigation. Now, in terms of how it applies to other coastlines, I mean, the bottom line is we know there was corrosion in this building because it was in the prior reports. What, you know How much that contributed to the collapse and the exact mechanism of what happened, we don't know. But we certainly know there was corrosion and we certainly know that especially reinforced concrete buildings on any coastline are subject to corrosion. And I think we're probably going to talk about that a lot as we move on through the interview today. Yeah, I'd like to just go back uh, really quickly. The team that investigated the World Trade Center and the team that's investigating this, I guess they all come from the same department. Does that department look at both residential and commercial structural failures? Can you talk a little bit about how active that specific department is in helping to set construction standards moving forward from those disasters? Sure. Well, NIST does a lot more than this. I mean, it's the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They they do all sorts of studies and standards testing and failure analysis. You know, the, the team that's put together has a bunch of members from SEI and other organizations on it. They don't set the building codes, but the organizations that do set the building codes are going to rely heavily on on what they produce in order to determine if any changes to the code is needed. So I know there's been a little bit of a a rush by some politicians to to kind of satisfy the constituents and say we're doing something and regulate this and and regulate that, but we really need to know number one what happened, number two is it something that can happen again? And if it is, can it be prevented before we start making regulations or changing codes? So I think in terms of changing the codes or changing the regulations, first this report has to come out and then the code setting bodies will determine what should change, if anything. And my hunch is that those code setting bodies are state by states that have different geographical needs, states like California and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. Oh, there used to be all different model codes, they're called, across the United States. Different regions essentially had different codes. And about 20 years ago, that was consolidated into what's called the International Code Council. They set what are called model building codes. So they will publish a, a building code that's the International Building Code, the International Residential Code, the International Mechanical Code, a whole series of codes. And then 
the legal power to enforce a code is done at the state level and it's state by state. So each state will adopt a code and then make local revisions to it. So areas that have hurricanes or areas that have seismic or areas that are subject to wildfires generally will have statewide requirements. And then there's even local requirements. You know, South Florida has its own building code for high hurricane, high winds, local jurisdictions. I mean, I'm right outside of New York City and there's more rules and regulations on a citywide level in New York than just about anywhere. So it kind of trickles down the codes and standards organizations kind of put a model out and then the the states and counties make local modifications as needed. But the, the bulk of the code is the same across the country. Yeah, that's good to know that at least the foundation is the same and then they change those codes to meet local jurisdictional needs. Going back to the Surfside condo collapse, it's kind of curious if you can extrapolate that out to perhaps some general learnings on coastal properties, even though the report's not finalized, is there things that we know now that we can move forward with or what to look for? Well, I mean, the fact that salt air corrodes concrete or reinforced concrete is not new. You know, reinforced concrete has structural steel reinforcing bars in it. It's a composite material. The concrete takes the compression and the steel takes the tension and they work together. So any kind of structural concrete has steel embedded in it and the water is the enemy of that. So when water gets to that steel, it rusts the steel and when the steel rusts, it swells and that force is significant enough to bust the concrete from the inside. So That is not a new phenomenon or something that's unique to what happened in Surfside. That's been going on forever. I mean, parking garages in the Northeast are notorious for this because the road salt gets mixed in with the snow and, uh, you know, in the wheel wells of the cars then falls off in the parking garages and you have salt water essentially seeping its way through the slab and rusting the steel. Coastal buildings all along both coasts are subject to both high humidity in the air and and salt in the air. And all of this over time will cause the steel to rust in the concrete and and cause damage. Now, oftentimes this is to balconies and facades and minor components of the building. And that's a battle that engineers have been fighting forever. But what might have happened here is that that type of corrosion actually got into the important structural components of the building and cause damage. Well, given that building was built in the, I believe, the early 1980s, how have engineering standards evolved since then? It it sounds like the saltwater is, a, like you said, an age-old issue. What can we do to improve that? Well, there's things you can do in parking garages that's a little, little easier to deal with, like waterproofing membranes you can put over the driving surface to prevent the water from getting through, but they're very expensive. So a lot of owners don't want to do that. And obviously, if you ever tried to put something like that in the building code, there'd be a significant pushback from developers and building owners because it would significantly increase the cost. A smart owner will look at the benefit also and say, well, if I spend this much money now up front, that will greatly reduce my maintenance costs going forward because I'm going to have a lot less damage as we go forward. There are some other things you can do with buildings and facades to reduce the risk of that, but basically protecting 
the important elements of the building from exposure to rain and to salt and to high humidity air is really the only thing you can do. So is there a way to distinguish very broadly the residential buildings by decade and style and talk about how engineering has positively evolved? Sure. I mean, I'll talk broadly about New Jersey only because I've been here my whole life and the majority of my work is here. But in addition to that, we have a incredibly diverse stock of buildings in New Jersey. We have buildings going back to the 1600s that are still standing. Every town has the house that George Washington slept in, apparently. (laughs) And, you know, we have everything from that to McMansions that have been built in the past 15, 20 years and everything in between. So, you know, I've had the experience of seeing just about every type of residential structure through the years. The the evolution really, there wasn't any standards for a long time, obviously. Things from the 1617s and, and majority of the 1800s, there was no standards. You built something and that was it. You know, building codes did start to come together, but they've gotten more and more detailed and complex over the years. The farther back you go, the less reliable you can be on what you're going to find. As you get closer and closer to the modern era, you know that if a house was built properly permitted and properly inspected, you pretty much know what you're going to get. But when you go back further and further, we've seen floors held up by Coke bottles stuffed under them and steam pipes holding up a piece of a floor. And there's was much less in terms of oversight and inspections. And people would just do things on a weekend with their uncle that new carpentry and they'd build a deck, you know, as opposed to now where there's much stricter requirements and permitting requirements and inspection requirements. So that's probably the biggest evolution is just the complexity of the codes and the enforcement of them. If you are thinking about uh, buying a home that has been renovated, including room additions, what should you know, structurally speaking? Can you tell quality by eyeballing a few key areas? Or what are the questions that you need to ask? Well, I think the first thing is to check paperwork. Now, that varies across the country, but, you know, generally the local municipality would have records of any permitting. So you'd want to see if it was permitted and you want to see if a design professional was involved. If, If it was done right, there should be an architect, possibly an engineer, and it should have been permitted. And and that's probably the biggest thing you can do because you can't be expected to know the technical things, but it's not that difficult to check if somebody else checked that. So if there's no records whatsoever of an addition that looks to be only 10 years old, then, you know, maybe they didn't do what they were supposed to do and they didn't have an architect and they didn't file for permits and nobody ever inspected it. If you find a permit and a set of plans that was filed with that permit and and the inspection reports that everything was inspected and complies with those plans, that's the first and most important thing to do. Other than that, obviously hiring a home inspector and you know any follow-ups that they recommend based on their screening of the house would be the next due diligence step. In terms of what to look for, common things would be walls being removed or columns being removed without any oversight or replacement of what needs to be replaced when that happens. That's something we see. Sagging floors, recently finished basements that you have no idea what's behind the walls or what condition they were in before they finished it. You know, I think hiring a home inspector, hiring an engineer, 
checking the paperwork. That's the stuff that really any home buyer can easily do and the best way to protect themselves. As far as hiring an inspector, a lot of this is done very quickly within the home buying process. I was curious if there were specific questions that you need to ask the home inspector or when to know you need to go deeper than that general inspection. Well, that's really the home inspector's job. You know, a good home inspector is going to be like your general practitioner doctor. He's going to know a little bit about everything and he's going to know enough to know when to tell you to go see a specialist. That's the best analogy that I can give for that. Home inspectors are trained to do defect recognition. They look at things, something doesn't look the way it's supposed to, or there's red flags that they look for, then they note that. And then a good home inspector will know what the next step is when he sees that and how to advise you. So home inspectors should not be shopped for based on finding the cheapest person. I mean, that you're talking about saving 200 bucks on hundreds of thousands of dollars of a purchase, and you're going to risk that money for saving 200 bucks on the cheaper home inspector is just doesn't make sense to me. So you really need to hire somebody that knows what they're doing. What are some easy signs just very generally to spot sketchy construction or repairs enough to just ask the home inspector about it? And just an FYI for everyone listening, these questions aren't implying that the current homeowners know the repairs are sketchy. Some people move in, they didn't see something, it never caused them any problems. It might be something that the next homeowner looks at and says, wait a second. So not assigning blame to anyone. Correct. This conversation I have all the time with people when they're buying a house that was recently flipped, the contractor or the flipper may have covered up a lot of things that they either intentionally or unintentionally, I guess is the polite way to put it. You know, there's certainly plenty of nefarious action out there where people will intentionally cover up something, but there's also plenty of people that just don't know they're covering up something or didn't realize they're covering up something. So, you know, there's been a lot of flipping of houses recently. It's a trendy thing. And I always warn people on a house flip that I didn't see it before it was flipped. And I don't know what they may have done that was just kind of cosmetically covering over something, cosmetically hiding something. And that's a risk that's just inherent in buying something like that. It's, you know, doesn't mean it exists. So let's say you've been in a home for a while. Are there structural components that should be checked within a number of years? And what would they be for like a single family home and then a condo building? Well, the only things that, well, I guess there's two things that happen. You know, if there's going to be a significant structural problem due to an overload or an underdesign, that pretty much manifests itself immediately. The other things that are a little more progressive would be just wood sags, and that happens over time. And if you've been in a brand new house versus a house from the 1700s, you know, it has to go from one to the other, and that's a very slow process. So the more robust the design of the house is, generally the less sag over time there'll be, but just sag of wood over time with age does not necessarily mean something's wrong or something's going to collapse, but that's something that changes over time. And then another thing that could change over time would be a settlement of a foundation. For the most, you know, that resolves itself within a couple of years. You're sitting on some loose, fluffy soil that wasn't properly compacted. The, the weight of the house on it is going to push it down. Once it's compressed, it's not loose and fluffy anymore. 
it stops getting pushed down and the foundation stops moving. Now, that could take a month. That could take a couple of years. There are some processes of soil settlement that take longer than that, certain clays and organic materials. That, that's the exception. That's not the rule. The problem with settlement is it's not a problem till it is a problem. So you generally monitor it and don't have to do anything whatsoever other than maybe patch the cracks unless it crosses a certain threshold to become a problem and endanger the ability of the foundation to do its job. And then you have to spend a lot of money on fixing it. So that's something to monitor. And then the other stuff to monitor is things that are exposed to weathering and to water. So you could have foundation walls that have excessive water pressure on them because your gutters are overflowing and saturating the soil and the yard isn't graded properly. So you have excessive water pressure on the foundation walls, which bows them in over time. Or you have a exposed lintels, steel lintels over your windows. They can rust or a deck, a concrete type of deck, not, not a wood deck, but a concrete type of deck that has a room below it that's exposed to the weather. That concrete would be subject to the same things you, we were discussing in a condo building. Those are the things that happen in a house. Other than that, other types of problems you have in a house are not progressive like that. Interesting. If you have a home that's, for example, 50 years old, and someone comes in, there's a few cracks, and they say it's settlement. I mean, after a house has been there for 50 years, would you expect that house to, quote, settle? Or would you expect that there's something else going on? And I know this is a very general question. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a, a very good point and a very good question because I have this discussion all the time. When we go out to look at a residential structure, we're comparing it to other similar residential structures. So if that's a 50-year-old house, if it's a 100-year-old house, we're just looking at you know, what is normal for a 50-year-old house, what is normal for a 100-year-old house, and is there something abnormal? Is there abnormal levels of risk? So yes, a 50-year-old house, but you know, especially a 100-year-old house, it's expected to have outdated construction techniques. It's not going to comply with modern building codes. It's going to have your beautiful trim and, and all the charm of an old house, but generally no closets and the bathrooms are going to be half the size of a, a modern bathroom. So there's, there's trade-offs, but I, I wouldn't expect a 100-year-old house to have perfectly level floors. And if it did, I would think something's wrong. And 50 is in between, but wood sags over time. So it's expected that there's normal sag and then there's abnormal sag. One of the things I do is give continuing education classes to home inspectors. And I actually have a entire seminar that's called the aging process for houses. And we go through exactly what is normal and what is abnormal for different types of materials as they age. For owners of condos and townhomes where you've got buildings with several units or just like a duplex type structure where one wall is shared, what do those owners need to be aware of primarily from a structural point of view? Well, the, the most important thing is that you're not alone, I guess, for lack of a better term. As you said, you have a, a shared wall. One of the things we have in a lot of the cities in New Jersey is the brownstone row house types of buildings is what's called a party wall, where it's not a townhouse or condo, but there's one one wall between the two brownstones that the property line is in the middle of the wall. So that's another situation. <laughs> but you know the, the issue is you're not alone. So something that happens in your neighbor's house or modifications that your neighbor made certainly could affect you, both from a safety perspective and from a financial perspective. I mean, we've had 
very bad situations where the two people on either side of the wall start litigating over who caused what damage and who's fixing what. In a building, you know, it's magnified too because you also have the common areas. And we've had a lot of situations where there's disputes over what is common area and what is not and what is covered by the condo association. So safety is certainly one thing, but building collapses are extremely rare. And I know that's kind of one of the things we're here to talk about today, but you got to realize that especially in the United States, I mean, sometimes that happens in other countries, but of all the buildings that we have here, when a building does collapse, that's national news because it's such a rare thing. But it's more of a financial concern for what are you going to be responsible for when you're part of a condominium type of ownership. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about you hire a general inspector and as kind of like the general doctor of the house. And and if you need further inspections, that inspector will recommend someone. But as far as just being a homeowner and having a little bit of knowledge, when should a potential homeowner know that they need to hire a structural engineer to inspect a property, regardless of what a general inspector says? Well, I mean, the things to look out for would be sagging floors, cracking, now drywall cracks and has nail pops, and that happens over time. And generally, you need to patch and paint every couple of years. But when you see cracks that open up beyond a hairline or eighth of an inch, that's when something's moving. It might be worth a call. Floors that are continuing to sag worse, cracks in your basement foundation, bowing in of your foundation walls with horizontal cracks. I mean, these are the common issues we see in in single-family residences and the kinds of things that homeowners could notice if you have a brick or masonry type of facade and you start getting a lot of cracking in that. Tile floors that are cracking without dropping something on a kitchen floor and cracking it is one thing. But if you have a, a kitchen floor that's tiled and all of a sudden it starts getting all these cracks, that's a great indicator. Tile, brick, wallpaper, rigid materials are great indicators that something's moving because they have no flexibility and they'll crack if anything moves. Wallpaper is great because you can't hide damage, especially from a due diligence perspective. If you have a crack in drywall, you can just spackle it and, and paint it. And right before you list the house, you, you really can't do that with wallpaper. So those are the kinds of things that help me assess, you know, if I'm looking at a house that has all tile floors and all brick exterior and all wallpaper inside, it could be a three-minute inspection. Really good point. You had also mentioned that you train structural engineers and inspectors. What type of training do inspectors get early on and then how do they continue that training so you know that you're getting a good inspector. Sure. I, I give continuing education for home inspectors. I don't train structural engineers. But again, home inspection is licensed at the state level. And I believe that not all states require them to be licensed. It's a little less regulated than engineering. Every state has an engineering licensing board. There are some national organizations that have standards. One is ASHI, the American Society of Home Inspectors. One is NACHI, N-A-C-H-I. And they generally have both standards to join and standards of practice. I know in New Jersey, the home inspectors are subgroup of the engineering licensing board. And New Jersey has, there's a practice for home inspectors that are actually written into the law that they're required to follow. But those standards of practice are generally very similar 
nationally and very similar to the standards of practice that ASHI and NACHI puts out. And those say what the home inspector has to do, what he doesn't have to do, what is required to investigate and not what is required to report. Now, in terms of training, there's courses that are accepted by these organizations and accepted by the state licensing boards. They generally have a bunch of different modules on the different components. There'll be one general, one on reporting and running a business and that kind of thing. And then there'll be a structural one, there'll be an electrical one, there'll be a plumbing one, there'll be a HVAC one. And generally, you have to complete that course in order to get licensed in the states enough licensing or in order to get a credential from ASHI or NACHI or something like that. Excellent. Excellent. Good to know. So when you hire a home inspector, should they have one of those two credentials? Uh, well, if you're in a state that has licensing, they need to be licensed by the state. So great. I think that the ASHI and NACHI are good to have, but those are just private organizations. It's a private credential, but... First things first, you need to check what the requirements are in your state and make sure they're complying with that and make sure they have insurance. A lot of the states that have licensing require insurance as part of that licensing, and that's to protect you because, you know, it's very easy to fold up your business or to disappear. But if you have an insurance policy in place, you know, if the home inspector misses something, that'll cover you. And I know being a resident of California, you go on the state website and you just find home inspector, find licensed home inspector. You just Google it within the first page will bring you to the state webpage where you can go and put in someone's name or their business or even their license to find out if they're in good standing or not. So my hunch is that the other 49 states have the same exact thing. Maybe the departments are called something else. Yeah. I, in New Jersey, we have the same thing, but New Jersey and California are two of the most regulated states in the country. But <laughs> I know from an engineering perspective, yes, all 50 states have an engineering board. They have a website and you can do a license search on those websites. Home inspection requirements are a little more varied and a little bit looser, but you should be able to find that. Excellent. So can you provide our audience with three to five great structural oriented tips when it comes to purchasing a home? What do we all need to know? Well, first is to find a good home inspector and to not price shop too much. I mean, obviously you have two equally qualified people and one is a little bit less money. That's fine. But I've seen plenty of people hire a unqualified, inexperienced, very cheap home inspector, save $200 and lose $150,000 on things he missed. So there's really nothing to discuss as far as I'm concerned in terms of the cost savings versus the risk. Next, if the home inspector makes recommendations for things to follow them, you know, sometimes it can be daunting if you just had this home inspection and now you have to get an electrician to look at something, an engineer to look at something, and a plumber to look at something. But again, this is a major purchase and the risks of problems is so significant compared to the cost of these things. Hiring an engineer can always be done. You don't need the home inspector to tell you you have to do that. Obviously, it's an extra cost and you could just say, well, I'm going to hire an engineer. I'm going to hire an electrician. I'm going to hire a plumber. I'm going to hire all these people regardless. And that's fine. I mean, if you really want to do your due diligence, spend a couple thousand dollars on all that stuff, again, for the hundreds of thousands of dollars we're talking and these numbers are relative. You're in California and I'm in New Jersey. So again, our housing prices are probably a little skewed from what a lot of people in the rest of the country are used to. But the costs of having these things versus the cost of the house and the risk is minimal, I believe. 
and then do your own due diligence with pulling paperwork from the local jurisdiction on any permits or any issues or any violations on the house and follow the recommendations of your professionals. They're there to help you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your insight and expertise. Joe, this has just been really great and really informative. I really want to stress how important understanding your house or potential house is from a structural perspective. And as Joe had mentioned all throughout this episode is don't be Penny wise and pound foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Penny wise and pound foolish. You really want good people inspecting your house. It's probably one of the largest purchases you'll ever make. So little information and some good questions can really save you a lot of time, money, and headaches. So Joe, any final thoughts and where can people find you? Well, thank you for having me. This was great. And my company is Structural Workshop. We have a website, which is www.structuralworkshop.com, and we have a lot of information on there for home buyers, homeowners, home inspectors on the kinds of things we typically see, typical issues. And if you're buying a house and your home inspector finds a problem and you want to read up on it, that's a great place to do it to get a head start on understanding foundation and framing issues and other types of things we see in single family houses. Oh, fantastic. So thank you all for listening to the Single Lady Estates podcast. To learn more about what Joe discussed and to join our community, go to our website at singleladyestates.com, connect and engage with our community. Also, we launched our Single Lady Estates merchandise store and you can find our signature mug and notebook on our website.